Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas nearly. I know that Christmas is a, a bit of a Marmite thing for some people, but I love Christmas. Earlier this week, we had our staff Christmas lunch. Yeah, it was great. And as well as Secret Santa and silly hats and Christmas jumpers and some people advertising Coca-Cola, we had Christmas crackers. And I love Christmas crackers because of the jokes. Now, you may not know this, but at Aylesbury Vineyard, where we were senior pastors before, I was renowned for my jokes. Renowned may not be quite the word everyone would use, but Christmas crackers are great because if I gather up all of the jokes, I get a whole year's worth of material all at once. <laughs> would you like to hear some of them? Yes. Okay, here's, here's a few of the best ones, and I think you will agree that they are pretty special because it's not often you come across jokes in Christmas crackers that no one has heard before. So, what do you call a kangaroo wearing a Santa hat? A Christmas jumper. <laughs> they get better. What do snowmen have for breakfast? Ice Krispies. <laughs> what goes O-O-O? Santa walking backwards. <laughs> it's a bit subtle for some of us, that one. And, and then, best of all, we have to finish with a biblical one. What did Adam say the night before Christmas? It's Christmas, Eve. <laughs> Why pay good money to go to the pantomime when you can come to Sutton Vineyard? You can look forward to more of those in 2023. But of course... Christmas isn't just about Christmas crackers, important though they are. It's about the beginning of the Christian story, how Christianity began. Now, one of the unfortunate consequences of having a PhD in theology is that you begin to kid yourself that you know a bit about that kind of thing. So I thought this morning I would put that overconfidence into practice and do a little bit of a theological critique of the Christmas story. Because it seems to me that no one really thinks that much about it. I mean, year after year, it's the same old, same old, you know, with Mary and Joseph and the donkey and the innkeeper and the shepherds and the wise men and all that stuff that we're familiar with. And, and that's fine. I mean, arguably, it's a bit late for major changes to the story now. But it does seem to me that there are lessons to be learned. What I mean is, can I be very honest with you about this? If I was God, and perish the thought, some of you are thinking, but if I was God, and I was wanting to reveal myself to the world at Christmas there's a few things that I might have done a bit differently. Things that, in my opinion, would have made that Christmas story far more successful. So I ran my ideas past Lynn, as I always do, and she said they sounded more like Alan Partridge than the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> which I took to be a compliment. 
If I can do for the Christmas story what Alan Partridge has done for television, then that would be quite a legacy, wouldn't you say? But Lynn did also say that I should warn everyone that today's talk is a little bit tongue-in-cheek. She said that it needed a disclaimer. I always listen to Lynn most of the time, so there it is, you have been warned. If you want a title for today's talk, it's How Not to Start a New Religion. How correcting a few simple errors would have made the Christmas story far more successful. In my humble opinion, after lots of diligent research. So let's start with the timing of the whole thing. They say that timing is the secret of a good joke. Not that I ever let that get in my way. But really, to start a new religion in the first century was not great timing. I mean, if God had chosen the 21st century instead, we could have videoed it, put it on the internet, and live-streamed everything like we are today, rather than having to rely on eyewitnesses, people who knew Jesus personally, having to tell people in person by word of mouth, what they personally had seen and experienced. That is so yesterday, so inefficient. Now, I suppose that that's probably why Jesus met with so many people after his resurrection. The Bible tells us hundreds, in fact, so they could verify it as eyewitnesses. So knowing Jesus personally and telling people your story and then writing it down for us in the Gospels does make some sense. I do get that. But if Jesus had come now, we could have videoed it all on our phones. No one would need faith. Everyone would believe, wouldn't they? Obviously, because as they say, the camera never lies. So then no one will be able to say that the story of Jesus might be fake news, would they? So point number one is that the timing was, at best, a bit questionable. Point number two, there's definitely a few problems with the Mary and Joseph bit. I mean, yes, there's, there's something quite nice about having angels visiting them. We like a bit of the supernatural, because... After all, it is a supernatural story about a supernatural God coming into our world in a supernatural way. But really, was that virgin birth stuff really necessary? Surely, Jesus could have done without all of the rumors and the whispers about who the Father was when he was growing up. In fact, it's probably the reason that when Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem, where their family all live, they all turn them away. You may have noticed in one of the readings that it said Mary laid Jesus in a manger in the room where the animals were because there was no guest room available for them, not because there was no room for them in the inn, which is the way it was translated 300 years ago. But nowadays we know a lot more about ancient Greek and what the passage is actually talking about is guest rooms in the family's homes. What we don't know is whether they just said they had no room, whether they were really full or not. 
but maybe because they were disowning this young girl who'd brought shame on the family by getting pregnant before marriage. This girl who'd come up with this story that it was God, not me. And in the culture of the day, that was a massive scandal. It was a a huge deal and really shameful for the family. And when something like that did happen, it was the girl who usually got the blame. So, if it was me, and I do appreciate there may be two views on this, but if it was me, I would cut out that virgin birth stuff, just to make the story that little bit more believable. I mean, after all, what do we lose by dropping it? All I can think of is that maybe, even at the beginning of his life, God wanted Jesus to really understand what it's like for people to feel shame and be rejected and alone. So that he would be able to say, hand on heart, I know exactly how you feel. But even so, if it was me, I would have Jesus coming to earth in a spaceship. A rocket like Superman coming from the planet Krypton. Surely that is far more saleable. Obviously that baby Superman costume would be optional. So that is point number two. There's just a few things that we need to tweak to make it that bit more believable to sell the story in today's world, and especially some of that Mary and Joseph stuff. Point number three. We really need to upgrade some of the characters. And where better to start than with those shepherds? Now, when we think of shepherds, we probably tend to think of gentlemen farmers in their barbers and their green wellies, just popping out on Christmas Eve in their Range Rovers to check on the sheep for a a nice glass of claret with dinner. But it wasn't like that in first century Israel. In that society at that time, being a shepherd was pretty much the worst job going. Shepherds were seen as the lowest of the low. Now, when we were at Ellsbury Vineyard, our first worship leader was a shepherd. And when I said that in a Christmas sermon, the poor guy looked mortified. The reason that they were in the fields at night is because they lived outdoors with the sheep. They had to do that to protect them from thieves and wild animals. So they had to walk the hills miles and miles from home looking for scarce pasture in that arid and barren landscape. So they were sleeping in their clothes for weeks on end with no showers and no toilets. So they smelled pretty bad. Being a shepherd was right up there, or perhaps I should say right down there, with being a dung sweeper. At least if you were a dung sweeper, there was plenty of work close to home with all those donkeys and camels everywhere. And because they had to work on the Sabbath, shepherds were looked down on by the religious people because obviously they couldn't get to synagogue every week. They also had a a reputation for being dishonest. People said you should never buy wool or lamb from them because you'd have to assume that it's been stolen. And they weren't allowed to give evidence in court because no one ever believed a word that a shepherd said. 
So call me old-fashioned, if you will, but it sounds to me like a category error for God to choose people like that to be the witnesses to the birth of his son. So given that background, you can imagine how terrified the shepherds would have been when they saw the angel, because they would have assumed that it was bad news coming, God's judgment on them. And you can also imagine how relieved they were when it wasn't bad news at all. It was good news. In fact, it was great news. The people that no one else would choose had been chosen by God. The people no one else would believe were believed in by God. So no wonder they left their sheep to go to Bethlehem to see what God was doing even though they'd almost certainly have got the sack for it. So for the Christmas story to be credible, we can't have Jesus being associated with people like shepherds, can we? We have God's reputation to consider. So if I was advising him, I would be saying you need to announce it through respectable people, like church pastors and politicians, who everyone would believe. <laughs> and that takes us on to point number four, which I have to say comes with a bit of an apology. I know that this reduces the number of parts for the children in the school nativity play. <laughs> but I'm afraid those wise men have to go. That old Christmas carol says, we three kings of Orient are... But the reality was, we three kings of Orient weren't. They were actually astrologers, mystic Meg types from Persia. Now, they were what we would now call spiritual people. They were looking for God, but they'd been looking in all the wrong places, at the stars instead of the scriptures. The word magi comes from the same root as our word, magician. These people weren't even good Jews. They had no right to be included in the story. So why God would come to them when they didn't even believe the right things is anyone's guess. You see, what I'm saying is, if God insists on including people like shepherds and astrologers, there is a danger that people are going to get the wrong impression. They'll think that the Christmas story is about God reaching out to everyone and anyone, wanting to introduce them to his son and invite them to be part of his family, whoever they are. In fact, you could very easily think that from God's perspective, it's what Christmas is all about. Which leads on to my last point, number five which is probably the most unexpected thing of all in the Christmas story. Because it's the one thing we all know that religions do not do. They do not have God dirtying his hands and becoming personally involved in this world. You see, the whole thing about God is that it's supposed to be that he is holy and we are not, right? So... People expect him to keep his distance. That's why he is traditionally up there and we are down here. He's not supposed to lower himself. 
and lay aside his glory and majesty and get involved in the messiness of our human lives, bringing himself down to our level. That is not how it's supposed to work, is it? But yet again, this version of the Christmas story breaks all the rules with Jesus, the Son of God, coming into this world as one of us, as a real human being. The ultimate way for God to identify with his creation. And in some mysterious and unexplainable way to renew it and restore it and heal it from within. In the Christmas story, the invisible God becomes visible as someone that we can relate to, someone just like us. So we can see what God is like and hear what he wants to say to us in ways that we can understand. The Christmas story is telling us that a supposedly unknowable God wants us to know him and him to know us. And because of the incarnation, Jesus becoming human, no one can ever say to God, in fact, no one will ever need to say to God, you wouldn't know what it's like to be me, because he really does. There's many more things about the story of Jesus that we wouldn't expect, but we haven't got time to go into today. Like, Mary and Joseph having to take the baby Jesus and flee to Egypt as asylum seekers because of genocide that was happening where they were living. King Herod was killing all of the baby boys of Jesus' age because he'd heard from the wise men about the birth of a real king and he knew full well that he was just a puppet king put in place by the Romans. But the Son of God Living his first few years of life as a refugee is not what we would expect. There are so many things about the Christmas story that are not what we would expect. So much so that we might almost think that God had designed it that way. If it had just been a a bunch of first century Jewish guys getting together and making the story up, they didn't really do a very good job of it, did they? If it had been me, I would have changed a few things just to make it that bit more believable. But you know, maybe it's the very things that make it so unbelievable that actually make it so true. They do say, don't they, that truth is stranger than fiction. That's not actually in the Bible, but this is. It's not a verse that we usually read at Christmas, but it seems to be true of Christmas. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. In all the foolishness of this Christmas story, we can probably reckon that God knew exactly what he was doing. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And that kind of fits, doesn't it? Because the Christmas story is about foolish things, weak things, lowly things, and despised things. 
And it might just as well have been talking about people like us as well. Christmas is, of course, the beginning of the story of Jesus. And 30 years later, it ends the same way with another foolish idea that Jesus, the Son of God, would show his love for us by dying on a Roman cross for our sakes because of powerful men abusing their power and authority by killing the God who laid aside all of his power and authority in order to be God with us. And maybe that's another reason that Jesus came then and not now. If he hadn't come in the first century Roman Empire, where the Romans would get rid of troublemakers at the drop of a hat, then he wouldn't have been crucified. By coming when he did and where he did, he would have known that the men in power were probably going to kill him. So was that bad timing? Maybe. Although Romans 5.6 tells us that it was just at the right time that Jesus died for us. Anna, maybe I could invite you and the band to come back. Thank you. The Christmas story was the start of God reaching out to us. And the Easter story completes it. But we don't have to wait until Easter to ask ourselves, what does this Christmas story mean for me? Forget about the shepherds. Forget about the wise men. We could even forget about the wee little donkey in Ted Hastings' iconic phrase. (laughs) The Christmas story is about God doing something totally unexpected in unexpected ways. God coming to us. God reaching out, not to something called humanity, but personally to you and to me. And that's what the name Emmanuel means, God with us. Jesus coming to us to bring us to God. So the Christmas story is an invitation from God to know him personally in our lives. An invitation that is ours to accept individually, personally, this Christmas. And if you would like to know God personally, if you want to know how to go about that, then just ask someone you came with or talk to me or to Lynn at the end of the service. And we would love to pray with you and to make that introduction.